0: What Really Happened is produced by Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewirtz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Andrew Jenks. Cardinal Jamie Ortega of Havana has an oversized envelope. It's August 18th, 2014. The Cardinal was giving a speech at Georgetown University and then heading straight back to Cuba, or so we thought. Instead, the Cardinal makes a pit stop at the White House. His arrival isn't announced. Don't even waste your time trying to find it in the White House visitor logs. Been there, done that. Cardinal Ortega goes through a back entrance and then waits on the patio adjacent to the Rose Garden. He looks down at that oversized envelope. And then Cardinal Ortega jumps to attention. The man he is there to meet arrives, President Barack Obama. Obama shakes hands with the cardinal. Well, I don't know if he shakes his hand, but I assume. The United States and Cuba have had a fractured relationship dating back to 1958, although in my research, we can trace it to as far back as 1891. But for about a year and a half, sometime after Obama won a second term in office, both Cuba and the United States have been secretly working to make relations better. When both countries hit an impasse only a few months ago, it was agreed that perhaps the Catholic Church could help. The Cardinal holds up that oversized envelope, takes out a piece of paper, and reads, I have recently delivered the exact same letter to President Raul Castro in Havana. In Spanish and translated for the President, the Cardinal's message is simple. He wants to be the referee. Both countries can trust him to be fair. He has good relationships with both countries, and both countries can trust him to keep a secret. The cardinal then makes it clear, this message is not coming from him. It's coming from his boss. The letter is signed, at the end, in very tiny font, Pope Francis. A simple message that most would pass along via email or phone just isn't how the Pope rolls. Obama nods his head, and three months later, America and Cuba, just 90 miles apart from one another, announce to the world... That they will end 54 years of hostility. This is CNN Breaking News.
1: This is huge. If the president of the United States is actually going to announce a resumption of diplomatic ties between the United States and Cuba, Europe, where I am right now, has long said, along with more and more Americans, that obviously this policy of the last 50 years has failed. The policy was enacted to remove the regime in Cuba and to or to change the
0: position and policy of the regime in Cuba by punitive means. And it simply hasn't worked. While some Americans believe the United States shouldn't have formal relations with Cuba because of their human rights policy, polls show most Americans with changing demographics believe the embargo isn't working. Policy experts, most Democrats and Republicans agree. And so suddenly, American tourists are providing big business for Cuba. There's Airbnb and Google. Tourism rises, making money for airlines and cruise ships. Local restaurants and cabs are all profiting. And for the United States, when negotiating at South American conferences, they are no longer bogged down by their relationship with Cuba. This was something I hadn't expected. Americans also now have better intel. After all, Cuba is a fertile ground for collecting information about other countries, including North Korea, China, and Russia. Finally, a win-win. And then, Donald Trump wins the election. Suddenly, there's concern. Will he blow up the deal? It's unlikely. That's the consensus because this is clearly benefiting too many people. And then, out of nowhere, this happens.
2: Americans under attack in Cuba. I mean, it's very mysterious, Brianna. 21 diplomats and family members have been affected. About 50 separate incidents. Sources tell CBS News two more Americans have been targeted in a mysterious sonic attack overseas. Our sources say the latest incident suggests Russia might be involved in the attacks.
0: It feels like it's out of some sort of fictional book. Something like Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And then... Almost as quickly as America's relationship with Cuba was on the rise, it's now on the brink of falling apart. Back to the bad, old days. But in my research, something very interesting happened. None of this made sense. At different points, I've been convinced that acoustic weapons don't even exist. That this was the Russians, and then the Cubans, and then, believe it or not, the Americans or that this was a rogue faction within different countries, only to then think maybe it was environmental factors or mass hysteria or a wide range of other medical conditions I've never heard of. I do have an opinion by the end of this, but it's been a journey. I've talked to an ex-CIA analyst, Pulitzer Prize investigative journalist, Cuban ambassadors, Obama's man in Havana, the director of the National Security Archives Cuban Documentation Project, Acoustic experts in France, mass hysteria gurus, world-renowned neurologists, Senators Rubio and Menendez still won't call me back, but say la vie. I've tried going to Cuba, spoken at length with spy versus spy experts, and finally set a time to speak with the doctor who examined those Americans that were hurt. Only for him to cancel that call the day of. Oh, and I also talked to a guy in Germany building sound waves at the Berlin train station, but that turned out to be inconsequential to this story. That is, inconsequential, if I'm actually going to sort out what really happened. I want to introduce you to Steve. Steve Dorsey. Not the guy at Fox News, that's Steve Ducey. I'm talking about Steve Dorsey, who works at CBS News Radio. It's August 9th, 2017. So Donald Trump has been president for about seven months. Steve wakes up alone. He's single, probably because he works too hard, but that's just my opinion, so he doesn't seem to have too much of a social life. Anyway, he leaves his apartment as usual, but his day is starting differently than normal. Normally, Steve watches press briefings from the State Department at his office, but not today. Although not an oversized envelope, he has something he needs to ask Heather Nauert, spokesperson for the United States Department of State, which is at this point in time led by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Steve finds the right building, but doesn't know where the press briefings are even held. He eventually sorts it out. So far as I can tell, you're the first person to ask the administration, at least on the record, about Cuba. Is that accurate so far as you know?
3: That's accurate. I had been given a tip about what was going on in Cuba a few weeks before I went to this briefing. And that's when i started to do some digging on it and i came prepared Uh, folks were being affected folks were being sickened or injured in some way uh in havana cuba and we know that they were part of the u.s embassy community uh station there and it's been going on for months at that point Um, but we didn't really quite know the contours of it yet um we didn't know the specifics Uh, We didn't know exactly the details, uh, and we didn't have some information confirmed from the State Department.
0: Steve hopes to get his question in, but there's no guarantee. He tries to sit in the front row, but those are reserved for what on the surface we'd consider more important news outlets. Steve finds a spot, and he's determined to get a question in, which he does. But now, again, spokesperson for the U.S. Department of State, has a question. I'll give you a heads up. She doesn't know who Steve is. Not yet.
2: Hi, and uh, oh, sir, your name is? Yeah,
0: Steve Dorsey from CBS News. Hi, Steve. Um, mm-hmm. Hi,
1: um, just a quick change in topic. Can mm-hmm. you tell us about the incidents that have been going on in Havana affecting
0: U.S. government workers there?
2: Yes. Um, so we are certainly aware of what has happened there. Um, give me one second here.
0: Nowert had heard that somebody, as it turns out Steve, may be asking about something that happened in Havana. It's the first time any official has spoken publicly on the topic.
2: So some U.S. government personnel who were working at our embassy in Havana, Cuba, on official duties.
0: Real quick, sorry to interrupt, but note what Nauert just said here. Quote, some U.S. government personnel who were working at our embassy in Havana. She doesn't simply say United States diplomats. She says some U.S. government personnel, which could mean CIA agents. Then again, it could mean those that simply are not ranked as high as diplomats. Regardless, I wanted to note it.
2: So they were there uh, working on be- on, par- on behalf of the U.S. Embassy there. They've uh, reported some incidents which have caused a variety of physical symptoms i'm not going to be able to give you a ton of information about this today but i'll, t- I'll tell you what we do have that we can provide so far uh, we don't have any definitive answers about the source or the cause of what we consider to be incidents
0: but now it does say the united states has taken action
2: we asked two officials who were accredited at the embassy of Cuba in the United States to depart the United States. Uh, Those two individuals have departed the United States. We take the situation very seriously. Uh, One of the things we talk about here often is that the safety and security of American citizens at home and abroad is our top uh, priority. We're taking that situation seriously and it's under investigation right now.
0: While Steve, I assume, doesn't doubt that the United States' top priority is to protect its diplomats abroad, he does wonder if Asking the two Cuban embassy officials to leave seems well. Here's Steve.
1: If the U.S. doesn't have a definitive answer on the cause or source of the incidents, why did it ask those two Cuban embassy officials to depart the U.S.?
2: Look, uh, our some of our people have had the option of leaving Cuba as a result uh, for medical reasons. Coming. I can't tell you the exact number of that, but I can... What,
0: was
1: it in the tens,
0: dozens? I'm not,
2: I'm not going to characterize it. I do not believe it was that large.
0: Now, reporters other than Steve are asking questions. In other words, this is a re- re- reciprocity thing. So to recap, Americans have been involved in some sort of incident in Cuba. And because of this, the State Department decided to force two Cubans to leave America. Reciprocity, in this case, is a fancy word for payback.
2: I'm, I'm not going to call it as such, but we asked two people to go home.
0: And how long has this been going on for? Steve continues to try and understand how much he can, but he knows he's on the clock. This is a State Department briefing. When searching on the U.S. Department of State archival website, it seems to me that the George W. Bush administration and the Barack Obama administration had State Department briefings nearly every day. During the Donald Trump administration, there seems to be about none to two a week. That's just a simple fact, and the only point is that there are reporters from all over the world at these hearings. And although this Cuba news is a huge story, most of the oxygen is taken up by the press having to ask questions about President Trump's latest comments. Today, it's Trump claiming North Korea will face fire and fury should they endanger the United States. Nobody is sure what this means, which is nothing really, but everyone is asking. Steve does his best to stick at it. I could never do his job. I am way too gentle.
1: And how long has this been going on for?
2: So we first heard about these incidents back in late 2016.
1: And who is leading the investigation?
2: Um... The U.S. government is investigating this. I'm just, I'm not going to get into what it. Agency? Prior to that, I, I'm not going to going to get into it. You know which law enforcement agencies we have that would be concerned about this. Uh, the State Department is involved, but you could check with others as well. And just real quickly, was it just
1: State Department
0: employees or other employees from other government? Agencies? So these were. Now pay attention to what Nowert says. The word this.
2: My understanding is that it has only affected State Department employees. This has not affected any private U.S. citizens down there. We take this very seriously.
0: Now, famed reporter Andrea Mitchell, who most would agree does deserve that front row seat, is confused. She's a bit hard to hear off mic, but she asks, what is this?
2: What is this? This incident, Those, this and incident, incident, and that's what, that's what we're calling it. We don't know exactly uh, so, so what... Since
1: 2016, and you don't know what this incident is?
2: What this requires is uh, providing medical uh, examinations to these people. Initially, when they started reporting what I will just call symptoms, it took time to figure out what it was, and this is still ongoing.
0: So Heather Nauer suggests it's not some form of reciprocity or payback. You can go to the state.gov website, listen to the whole conversation, and form your own opinion. But for me, one of the first things Nowert said was that two Cubans were asked to leave America. It seems like it's one of the few facts she does know, which totally may be the case. Now, I think it's important to remember that in this briefing, Nowert did not bring up the idea that this had anything to do with sound. In his initial reporting, it doesn't seem like Steve Dorsey did either. But later that same night, at about 9pm, the Associated Press reported on the topic, revealing quote, U.S. diplomatic relationship with Cuba has been roiled by what U.S. officials believe was a string of bizarre incidents that left a group of American diplomats in Havana with severe hearing loss attributed to a covert sonic device. I asked one of the writers at the AP if he'd say who his sources were, but as suspected he didn't, Uh, he couldn't, but that it was multiple sources. So I'm now thinking, was it someone down in Cuba who had been hurt by a sonic device? Or was it a politician in the Trump administration? Maybe both. I don't know who. But regardless, this was a big shift in the story. We're now talking about a covert sonic device. And that, is juicy. It reads like a a Cold War spy novel,
4: one government official saying the incidents were so severe that some U.S. diplomats needed to get hearing aids. It comes as the relations between the U.S. and Cuba had started to improve. But now the future of diplomacy between the two countries seems uncertain. This morning, new questions about just what happened in Cuba after a string of bizarre incidents that apparently left a group of American diplomats in Havana with severe hearing loss attributed
0: to a covert sonic device. Even Stephen Colbert got in on it.
1: These incidents
4: are leading to concern that Americans may be the target of sonic attacks by a rival country. A rival country is attacking us with sound. Is it...
0: But wait one second. Sound as a weapon? What does that even mean? Is there some history of this? And in Cuba? Cuba is well known as a country in which everything is monitored. So I kept calling different people. Tried going to Cuba at one point. Started taking lessons on how sound waves work. And then I called it a break. It was a golden opportunity, literally. So, I couldn't agree more with what our boy Ernest Hemingway once said, which is, I love sleep. My life has a tendency to fall apart when I'm awake. You know? I love Ernest. We can try to convince ourselves otherwise, but I'm not sure if there's a bigger or more determining factor in how my day will go or how prepared I'll be than a proper night's sleep, which is why I want to introduce you to our incredible partners at Sleep Number, which I think are the best beds on the planet. There are different sleep number settings. Mine is 45. My partner's is yet to be determined because I need a girlfriend for that. I never thought I'd say this, but the bed is tremendously smart. It senses my movements and automatically will adjust. So I sleep like a human being opposed to waking up or snoring throughout the night. Uh, Being that I hardly do sleep, these hours of sleep make a huge difference in my life. Seriously, it does. At a Sleep Number store, you can see and feel how the bed contours to you and relieves pressure points with their individual fit technology. You really have to feel the difference. So come in and see the newest Sleep Number 360 Smart Beds. It's your competitive edge from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 550 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Visit sleepnumber.com backslash podcast, find the one nearest you. I tried getting in touch with Tim Golden, but knew I had little chance because he's a busy guy. If there's a Hall of Fame for investigative journalists, Golden is in it. He has been for some time. I did some digging, and apparently during college, he got a grant to travel to Latin America to study. Instead of just studying, he also began writing stories about what was going on there, and selling them to newspapers. He spent two decades at the New York Times as an investigative reporter, foreign correspondent, and national correspondent. Golden was also the founding managing editor for news and investigations at the Marshall Project, which I think is the nonprofit news organization focused on the U.S. criminal justice system. When Academy Award winners like Steven Soderbergh or Alex Gibney are working on a project that requires a certain type of expertise, Golden is who they call. Oh, and Tim Golden has also won a couple of Pulitzers. He is currently an investigative journalist at ProPublica. In a world of everyone accusing everyone of having a political tilt, Tim has always remained above the fray. Almost exactly six months after Steve Dorsey's initial reporting, Golden published an article with his colleague, Sebastian Rotella. This is perhaps the most comprehensive report of what happened, or what did not happen, or just what the hell is going on. At this point in my journey, it's early September 2018, Tim's article from eight months ago, February 2018, remains the most thorough article on what happened. Like I said, Hall of Fame. He also made a documentary, which is awesome, chronicling Elian Gonzalez. He seems to have good relationships, to say the least, in Cuba. That, combined with his credentials, who else could figure this out?
5: I think in a situation like this, what if the question is, you know, how do you think outside the box about a strange story like this, Mm. and you know, how do you try to report on it creatively? I don't think you get that creative. I think you try to look at this in the same way that probably the, the FBI investigators are looking at it, which is uh, to try to understand the facts on the ground and try to understand the motivations of the various parties that are involved, both the affected diplomats and the and the government of the United States and, and also the suspected enemy forces that, that may have done this. Could they do what they're suspected of doing? Do they have a motivation to do that? It's it, It's really like any other kind of police reporting you're looking at a at a sort of a a crime scene in some ways and and try or a mystery and trying to figure out how could this have have happened what what are people not seeing what are the important threads that nobody's pulled
0: and so thanks to tim golden and sebastian rotella's reporting and others who i've mentioned this is what we do know happened it's late november 2017 in cuba The historic presidential election in the U.S. happened only a few weeks ago. An American diplomat in Cuba, who I'll call Diplomat Number 1, complains of some sort of sound, telling Tim and Sebastian, quote, "...it was annoying to the point where you had to go in the house and close all the windows and doors and turn on the TV. But I never particularly worried about it. I figured I'm in a strange country and the insects here make loud noises." Now, by insects, diplomat number one may have been referring to cicadas. Cicadas, I think, are clumsy little buggers, but they're badass in their own right. They seem like they're out of a sci-fi movie, as does this whole story. They have these bulging eyes set wide apart and wings that are oftentimes transparent and can seem rainbow-hued when held up to a certain light. What matters in this situation is that These cicadas make noise in an atypical way. They're not produced by rubbing together certain body parts, but instead by their external skeleton that supports and protects their body. This creates a loud noise. And if you wanna watch the BBC Earth documentary about them, you'll hear it's not just loud, but pretty annoying. I initially wrote a whole page about these buggers, but I don't wanna waste your time. Again, the point is they're loud and they're annoying. So diplomat number one is telling his neighbor, who is also a diplomat, let's call him diplomat number two, about these weird noises. Diplomat number one says he thinks they are likely cicadas, but diplomat number two, who again lives nearby number one, isn't so sure. Diplomat number two has heard these noises as well, and number two thinks the noise is too mechanical sounding to be any sort of insect. Regardless, neither report to higher ups about the issue. Again, Cuba does produce a lot of strange noises. But if it's not insects, like diplomat number one says, then what is it? Well, after months of research, I present theory number one. There is a very well known history in Cuba and plenty of other countries of what is called spy versus spy. For those not up to speed on international spying, Spy vs. Spy is a sort of game that governments play against each other. It has nothing to do with policy, it's just a way to try and keep tabs on each other. Sometimes you disrupt communications, or find ways to let the visiting country know that they're being watched. In the case of Americans in Cuba, when a family is out of the house, Cuban agents would go into the home, turn on the TV, and leave it on the Cuban propaganda network. Or they'd take a stack of books and move them to another part of the room. If you park in a certain space, they may take one of their cars and park it so that it's hard to get out. Simple stuff suggesting don't get too comfortable. America does the same thing. But I'm not going to purport to be some spy expert, which would be awesome. That is, until you know, it gets real. So I tracked down Ambassador Carlos Treto. Treto has been... Deep breath... A Cuban foreign service officer, country analyst officer, ambassador of Cuba to countries around the world. He's done considerable work in Japan, Bulgaria, the Balkans, Argentina, Ethiopia, Kenya, Colombia, you get it. He's written three books, over 100 articles and essays, and is a professor in Cuba as well as visiting professor or research fellow at Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and other universities around the world. Treto explained that almost every embassy in the world has intelligence officers. Some diplomats are diplomats. Some diplomats are really intelligence officers, not groundbreaking. Now, it is important what he noted here.
6: Only diplomats don't do do illegal things. Intelligence officers do illegal things or things that are hostile to the intelligence service or the counterintelligence service of of the host country.
0: So when intelligence officers are in a visiting country and attempting to communicate information back home, They must do this without the host country finding out.
6: They try to use the most advanced um, uh, electronic uh, surveillance equipment, try to hide the information, scramble the, the, create noise so that they can communicate safely with their assets.
0: Meanwhile, the host country counterintelligence officers will also use similar techniques, trying to interfere with that kind of communication.
6: But the 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 purpose of these actions is not to harm the other side. You don't do that to harm. Uh, it's it's an unwritten rule of intelligence services hmm. that you don't try to harm, kill, name the other side because then the other side will try to do it to you. So it it, it can go. So so usually you hinder you. Um, you um, you try to make life difficult, but that's it. You, you don't go beyond
0: that. The thing is, these days, it's not just trying to bug someone's phone like in the FX show The Americans. It's more complicated. There are more advanced eavesdropping approaches from remotely activating a laptop or smartphone that has cameras and microphones to laser-targeting windows in order to capture audio vibrations. And with technology growing at an exponential rate, This first theory I have is that maybe some sort of spy device was making weird noises. And it makes sense, and this is just my thinking, that between Cuba having what us Americans would consider strange noises, and this history of spy versus spy going on, these two diplomats don't go crying bloody murder, or to be less hyperbolic, these two diplomats, if they are indeed only diplomats, don't go to the local embassy seeking medical attention. And so maybe it was simply this. Spy versus Spy, resulting in some annoying and bizarre noise. Now, according to Golden's reporting, by the end of December, a man in the CIA walked into the medical clinic at the U.S. Embassy in Havana. Golden reports that this person was a, quote, fit younger man in his 30s. That part, a fit younger man in his 30s, I think is important. It's one of the rare descriptions we've gotten of anyone involved in any of this. Golden continues. The officer came with a more serious complaint. He had developed headaches, hearing problems, and a sharp pain in his one ear, especially following a strange experience in which something like a beam of sound seemed to have been directed at his home. And then shortly thereafter, again, an important part of all this, two additional CIA officers also seek medical attention at the embassy. By mid-January, Just around Donald Trump's inauguration, but obviously after he has been elected, there are four CIA officers who've gone to the embassy seeking medical attention. Those are the first four, all CIA, all hearing weird noises and feeling sick. So I'm thinking, and again, this is just me here and nothing to do with whatever I feel about politics, but I have at least a simple question. Is there something to be made of this starting to happen after Trump is elected? I also want to point out, I'm in no way doubting, in the slightest, that these American officials were hurt. Shortly after this, about 15 senior diplomats, known as the Country Group, a group that always knows about all the security concerns going on, discuss what's happening. This meeting is led by Jeffrey DeLorentis, who was in charge of the embassy. Essentially, he's the ambassador to Cuba. But because of politics and Congress, he was never officially given that title. This meeting does not include the 32 other American diplomats and eight Marine guards stationed in Havana. Again, this is not from reporting, but I do wonder how well this can be kept a secret when you're talking about people getting hurt. Now, granted, I'm not in the CIA, nor do I have a wife, but if I'm injured or a co-worker is injured, When I go home that night, I'm going to tell my significant other. On February 6th, two other CIA officers are sent to the United States for treatment. Around this time, the wife of an embassy staffer also hears something. But she doesn't just hear something, she also says she sees a van take off. From the best I can understand, it is the only time anybody has reported seeing anything, much less any person, that could be at all related to what these Americans are hearing or feeling. And that's vital to this story. There hasn't been anyone caught or found, nor any devices seen that resemble any sort of a way to attack anybody, with the exception of this van. And this is Cuba. People are always monitoring each other. Which is also why America is convinced that Cuba must know something. It also leads me to cross out theory number one. This idea that it was spy versus spy. Remember what Ambassador Tretto told me, and others did as well, that spy versus spy is done to interrupt communications or let a country know you're watching. But as he said, you don't hurt people. And people are getting hurt. Which is why I'm now thinking this is something other than spy versus spy. So, I'll let what happened play out some more. On February 17th, about 10 days after that van was spotted, a van that may or may not have to do with anything, the United States presents a formal complaint to the Cuban ambassador. Soon after, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is told about what's going on. On February 23rd, Jeffrey De Laurentiis, the man who is essentially our Cuban ambassador, in addition to Senators Richard Shelby and Patrick Leahy, meet with Raul Castro. Raul Castro has been president of Cuba for almost a decade at this point, after his brother Fidel was too sick and handed over powers. Reports are that Raul Castro makes a point of telling De Laurentiis in no uncertain terms that Castro has been made aware of the formal complaint and that the Cubans will do whatever it takes to get to the bottom of the problem. They will investigate with America, provide information they have, and help. While nobody is going to take Castro at his word, Castro also has no interest in hurting this relationship with America. At least in my conversations with everyone, it doesn't seem like it. Raul was the one that wanted this new and improved relationship with America. He was personally involved in the talks, and Cuba was already seeing a huge uptick in tourism and their economy. The deal was working well. Now, with that said, of course, there very well could be a hardline faction within Cuba that has something to do with this. Same could be said of other countries with covert operations in Cuba, so I won't overlook that. It's in late March, again this is 2017, Donald Trump has been president since January, that diplomat number one sees in the office that man who Tim Golden described as a fit younger man in his 30s. That fit younger man in his 30s tells diplomat number one that he just got back from Miami, where medical specialists found that he had had a series of problems, including a serious hearing loss. Five days later... On March 29th, Jeffrey De Laurentiis realizes it's time to bring in about a dozen more American staff and tell them. Too many people are getting hurt. He doesn't know what's going on, but thinks it's important to tell his staff. Now, some say De Laurentiis should have said something sooner, while others say most of the evidence at the time pointed to this being something related to spy versus spy or environmental factors. De Laurentiis also asked the staff in this meeting that they don't tell their family. He doesn't want any sort of overreaction. This doesn't go over well. Many in the embassy, in fact, find the ask quite absurd. Of course, they're going to talk to their family. Also, and this is again from Tim's and Sebastian's reporting, after De Laurentiis spoke with his team, quote, concerns among the staff and their dependents about their health exploded. Within barely a month, diplomats, reported a flurry of new incidents. By the end of April, more than 80 diplomats, family members, and other personnel, a very high proportion for a mission that included about 55 American staff, had asked to be checked out. Of those, there were about a dozen new cases, nearly half the number that would eventually be confirmed. Also reported, the affected diplomats experienced a wide range of sensations, Some heard sharp, piercing noises or a cicada-like buzz. Others felt concentrated beams of sound or auditory vibrations like those from the half-open window of a fast-moving car. Still, others heard no sound at all. Some voiced feeling shocked or shaken by the exposure or awoken from sleep, and others described a more gradual onset of symptoms that continued for days to weeks afterwards. Amid the fear that gripped many, some embassy staff came forward saying they might have heard or felt similar phenomena, but, and this is important, were found after being interviewed not to require medical attention. A vital component of all of this is to remember the Americans in Cuba who were injured had different symptoms. In mid to late April, there's another incident. And this one is different because it doesn't happen at anybody's residence, but instead at a hotel, a well-known hotel called Hotel Capri. There are two people who report hearing something. One is an embassy employee staying at the hotel because his apartment is undergoing renovations. And then the next night or two nights after, it happens to a doctor who has just flown in from Miami. This doctor is helping investigate what's going on, and while in this room, he hears some sort of piercing noise. But still, even with these two incidents, nobody can make sense of any of it. And obviously, the question then begs, well, is this only happening to Americans? And so, in late April, about a month after De Laurentiis told his own personnel, he tells allies in Cuba, Canada, the UK, and France about what's going on. And suddenly, 27 Canadians are seeking medical attention. None from other countries. Well, it's not true, actually. There's one from France, but it turns out to be unrelated. But with the Canadians, the symptoms seem milder. In May, June, and July, nothing happens. But then on August 21st, two more incidents happen, and at least one happen at another hotel, Hotel Nacional, not far from Capri. And then the next month... On September 29th, and this is really important, America's relationship with Cuba officially changes. The U.S. State Department orders 24 of the 47 diplomats assigned to Havana to head back to America. As Golden reports, this effectively shuts down the embassy's consular section except for emergency services. The State Department also orders 15 more Cuban diplomats to leave D.C. And then comes a travel warning. The State Department warns Americans not to travel to Cuba, saying they can't ensure their safety. Cuba is put on a state advisory level of three, the same security level as Pakistan, Venezuela, and Turkey. Again, no American tourists have been injured during this time. And so, business plummets. Everything that felt so promising now feels like it's slowly being broken down. And this leads me to theory number two. I introduce Spy vs. Spy Gone Awry. Peter Cornblue at the National Security Archive directs the Cuba Documentation Project. He's also the co-author of Back Channel to Cuba, the hidden history of negotiations between Washington and Havana. Peter is very well-respected and simply put, knows his stuff. Peter also believes what happened in Cuba was a classic example of spy versus spy, but where something unintentionally went wrong. I interviewed him in July, 2018. That this is part of a spy versus spy uh, saga
7: that's going on in Cuba for, for many, many years. Um, that, uh, that some type of surveillance operation on US officials that was stepped up uh, after Trump's election, um, in November, December of 2016, uh, has, has gone awry. Um, some type of technology that's not being used correctly, uh, some type of ultrasound operations that are uh, somehow um, causing this. And um, the key clue to that is the fact that the initial uh, people who were affected were part of the CIA station uh, in Havana, uh, and two other CIA oper- operatives who flew in after uh, the situation broke out um, were also affected. So clearly somebody was picking them up, uh, targeting them, or, or uh, in some way. Um, there's no evidence that this was an attack, but what this is more likely is, is a surveillance operation gone bad, that, uh, a misuse of technology.
0: I found this convincing. Some combination of surveillance equipment were creating these injuries. But I don't know anything about surveillance equipment. I really wanted to talk to someone who had worked extensively in the American intelligence world, ideally in Cuba. And so I tracked down Fulton Armstrong. Fulton was a CIA analyst for years and considered one of the top minds on anything related to Cuba, spending several years in Cuba beginning in 1989. He's also worked on Latin America at the National Security Council, National Intelligence Council, and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He is a senior fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. What did Fulton think of Peter's idea of spy versus spy gone awry?
8: He's glommed onto a conspiracy theory that explains it all except for the mysteries themselves, the medical mystery. The weapon in the mystery, the staging, the operational mystery. He still can't answer all of that, but he, he really embraces this spy versus
0: spy theory. Fulton makes a good point, which I don't think Peter would disagree with. That while Peter's idea of what happened is convincing in theory, you're still talking about a weapon that nobody knows exists or a scenario of weapons that created some sort of waves that nobody knows exists and created injuries. There is an experiment that was done at the University of Michigan, which you can check out, that claims to have shown how this could have worked. And I invited them on the show, but they didn't respond. And for me, it feels really far-fetched. They pretty much created the perfect scenario using a variety of devices that could somehow pull this off. And nobody has seen such devices. In fact, all anyone has seen is a van driving away. So both of my first two theories I'm crossing out or at least crossing out for now. This isn't spy versus spy or spy versus spy gone awry, which is too bad because I think it's kind of cool saying that all the time. But at this point, I'm thinking maybe Cuba doesn't know about what's happening because if they did, they would have stopped it by now. This has been going on for about eight months, whatever this is. Yes, I know. We still need to sort out who would be doing this in the first place. Cubans, Russians, some rogue person within the CIA itself. But what about using sound as a weapon in the first place? Is it just beaming loud noises at someone? Remember, that's not the case here. It's not necessarily loud sound. And the more I speak with different people, Ambassador Tretto, to ex-CIA officer Fulton Armstrong, to even Tim Golden, there are no specifics on acoustic weapons. I realized if I'm going to really understand all of this, I had to better understand the science of sound. Juliet Vokler is an acoustic weapons journalist, and her book, Extremely Loud, Sound as a Weapon, written in 2013, well before this Cuba news ever came up, analyzes how sound has been used in warfare. She writes, For more than half a century, articles have been appearing in the military, technical, and even general press presenting these weapons of the future as if for the first time. It's probably also the case that acoustic weapons, with their invisible, untouchable, magical nature, have fueled a literature too passionate to bother separating fact from fiction, too fascinated to distinguish science from the hype propertied by weapons manufacturers or conspiracy theorists. It's a tightrope walk, a balancing act. After reading the book, which I definitely recommend, I got in touch with Juliet who has been hesitant to speak with media about this sonic attack.
6: That um, other attacks have previously been described or other rumors that sound weapons have been uh, described in the media uh, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And and, uh, actually that proved wrong. Um, I mean, sound uh, is indeed an effective weapon, but not in this kind of uh, fantastic way, in a very, uh, in a much more uh, basic way. I mean, sounds that are effectively used as uh, a means to uh, uh, obtain law and order or as um, a military weapon are everyday sounds.
0: Julia is referring to weapons like the LRAD, which essentially beams noise and can cause permanent deafness at 300 feet. It's been used when police try to control protests, or when pirates attack cruise ships. And in Cuba, people haven't really described a weapon like an LRAD. Some didn't even report sound. Juliet writes about reports of sound weaponry from World War II to Russia in the mid-90s reportedly developing an infrasonic bullet, a sound bullet the size of a basketball, to a medical journal from 1997 which claimed the Chinese had an acoustic weapon. But scientists have said, scientifically, all of the above is not possible, and journalists have never found any evidence that such weapons exist. I found this to be a turning point in my research. I had been talking about sonic weapons, and sonic weapons don't even exist. But, and this is a big but, well, It may be true that, historically speaking, sound weaponry has not panned out. Tim Golden and others will say, We do have to consider the shroud of secrecy around government weaponry programs. This makes it difficult to totally count it out. Juliet would suggest she's heard about this secrecy angle since reports about the weaponization of sound first began turning up during World War II, if not sooner, and they've never panned out. The question here is... If it's not acoustic weapons of some variation that are responsible for making people sick, then what is it? Now I introduce theory number three, environmental factors. Ex-CIA analyst Fulton Armstrong convinced me on some interesting points. And don't forget, Armstrong has spent a lot of time in Cuba.
8: Let's be honest, there are much more plausible explanations for what was going on, including environmental ones including food, water, air, you know, I guess that's what environmental means. You have to understand that there are certain patterns in the personnel that have been affected and the situations and where they sit, um, including you have family members that are affected, but not all family members are affected, even though they were in the home at the time of the so-called attack. Why don't we look at this? Where are people buying their groceries? Where are they buying their booze? Where are they buying their tobacco? In a place like Cuba, there's a lot of black market activity, even that could appear to be coming through a clean channel, that you could buy contaminated booze. You could buy cigars that still have pesticides on them. Those things, uh, you have heavy metals in certain waters or beverages or juices that you might have. All of them could have
0: health implications. It's interesting to me that such a simple explanation, after considering so many other factors, kind of makes the most sense. This theory, theory number three, had me walking around convinced. Many American officials in Cuba are likely all eating similar foods from a handful of grocery stores or restaurants. All it would take is some sort of really bad batch. Sometimes the answer is right in front of us, or as Orwell said, to see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle plenty of environmental factors can cause ringing in your ears there's another reason that i think environmental reasons can't be ruled out and that is when you take a closer look at tim golden's reporting on what happened when canada was told about what was going on with americans in cuba the canadian ambassador told his 18 diplomats about the situation and said they should let him know if they or any of their family members were hearing weird noises or suffering from unusual illnesses. According to Tim's reporting, in all, 27 Canadian diplomats, spouses and children, representing 10 of the embassy's families, sought medical attention. Of those, eight people from five families, including two children, would be diagnosed with symptoms that were milder than those of almost all of the American patients. In April 2018 months after Tim and Sebastian's reporting, Canada removed families of diplomats posted at its embassy in Cuba. 10 Canadians had experienced symptoms, including headaches, dizziness, nausea and difficulty concentrating. But as one official said, the American experience was all about acoustic events and people feeling ill and we had people feeling ill with limited connections to acoustic events. I believe that this shows how smart people are usually good listeners, and if told that other people are getting sick by something, they will really think about their own well-being and well-being of their family, and in this case, many came back saying they did feel some sort of sickness, but it doesn't seem to have been a result of sound. What's also interesting to note is what one Canadian official told Tim and Sebastian— The Cubans are pretty attached to the 1.2 million Canadian tourists who come to Cuba every year. So they've got a really strong incentive to nip this in the butt. They've been proactive in trying to help us. So that left me with a simple question. If it's something like environmental factors, why are we talking about sonic weapons? On January 9th, Congress holds a hearing. And oh boy, brace yourself. Democrat Bob Menendez says, referring to the Cuban government, Despite their responsibilities, and despite insisting otherwise, they refuse to take the appropriate steps to fully investigate, cooperate, and ultimately stop these attacks on our diplomats. Without proof that Cuba did anything, and while the Cubans are doing everything they can to investigate what's happening, Democrat Bob Menendez has already decided what is going on. He's pointing his finger at Cuba. Marco Rubio joins. And in fact, he already had months ago. On the day that Steve first asked questions to Ms. Nauert, Marco Rubio came out with a statement. The Cuban government has been harassing U.S. personnel working in Havana for decades. This has not stopped with President Obama's appeasement. Personal harm to U.S. officials shows the extent the Castro regime will go and clearly violates international norms. The thing is, according to everyone else, not so much me as everyone else, the Cubans did in fact investigate. Todd Brown from the State Department and Diplomatic Security said this on the panel.
8: Senator, I'm not, a, I'm not aware that they've been uncooperative. I know that we've had uh, our own investigative team that went down in, in May, and, and they had no difficulties in at least entering the country and, and certainly working the case in terms of just the, the U.S. mission. Uh, I'm also unaware that the FBI has encountered any difficulties in terms of coming in and out of the country for investigative purposes.
0: Francisco Palmieri, Acting Assistant Secretary of State for the Western Hemisphere, he works for Tillerson, adds...
5: Throughout this process, we've not been able to identify um, who the perpetrator of such attack was and what the means of that attack uh, was.
0: And then there's Dr. Charles Rosenfarb from the State Department Bureau of Medical Services. He's the medical director. He's the third person on the panel looking up at the senators.
5: But the most
9: challenging factor is the lack of certainty about the causative agent and therefore the precise mechanism
7: of the injuries in, uh, suffered.
0: Senator Ron Johnson, a Wisconsin Republican, asks
7: Dr. Rosenfarbart, are you aware of any type of technology that would cause this?
0: No, I'm not. I mean, not. again,
7: not, not that you know exactly what causes, but are you aware of some kind of auditory type of uh, weapon that could uh, cause this type of uh, damage? No, I'm not, sir. Mr. Paul, do you know the United States government is aware of any? Uh, no, I do not, sir.
0: Paul Armstrong explained to me how American officials could have taken another approach. As an analyst, it is his job to understand everyone's point of view.
8: When I'm saying, let's engineer it from the other side and say, if the State Department were predisposed, would they have handled it differently? Predisposed to save bilateral relations, would they have handled differently? One massive piece of evidence is that very early on. The Cubans offered to do joint investigations, but uh, which we rejected. But also very early on, the Cubans set up a hotline, and they said, "said if you anybody call as they sense an attack might be imminent, as it's ongoing, or immediately after, please call our hotline. Whether the officer himself calls or calls the regional security officer at the embassy, have the RSO call, just call us so we can mobilize. And believe me, the Cubans can know who goes in and out of these neighborhoods. They see who could be staging some sort of thing. They could find some sort of residual something or other in a region. They could go and talk to neighbors. Did you hear anything, see anything? They could do things. The State Department directed the embassy to never, under any circumstances, use that hotline.
0: And while you may think I'm giving Fulton Armstrong a lot of pod time, remember two things. One, Armstrong knows Cuba about as well as anybody. And two, and this I'm only now mentioning, unlike others, Fulton doesn't discount anything being the answer. He doesn't think it's a sonic attack. That's true, but he's open to a lot of options. Fulton and many others do seem to think that what happened to the Americans in Cuba has turned into a meme. A meme in this context is when politicians with a specific agenda see that something happens then decide to use that happening to advance their narrative. As in, Rubio and Menendez don't like the deal with Cuba, they never did, they hear something about a sonic attack, and then just say, Sonic attack and Cuba as much as they can. I was reading an April 2018 Wired article, and they put it well, that memes aren't shareable because they are objectively true. It just has to be relevant, and to feel true. That space between truth and truthiness is where both memes and propaganda live. In this case, the meme could have been started by anybody inside the Trump administration, or anyone with an incentive to hurt relations between America and Cuba.
8: Let me give you the counter evidence. If if people wanted to solve this problem, because we can play it from the other side. One is that people were sabotaging and that this was part of a sabotage Effort, Coordinated or not, the word sabotage sounds conspiratorial and I don't really like conspiracy. It's just it became a convenient way to do what they wanted to do. But let's look at the other side. If the predisposition was to push normalization, to make things work, to solve problems, would we see something different from what we've seen? And the answer is a resounding yes. If people wanted to solve the so-called sonic attacks issue, and really understand, is it sonic? And really understand, is this an attack? And break this meme into digestible parts that people could challenge. Could they have? Of course they could have.
0: More on what this counter evidence could mean coming up, but meanwhile, during this congressional hearing, something strange happened. 50 minutes in, after they said the FBI was still investigating. Well, as it turns out, apparently the FBI is not. I couldn't believe the following. In fact, I've now watched this hearing three times on C-SPAN, whose ratings have just skyrocketed since I started this project. As it turns out, the FBI is not still investigating. United States Senator Jean Shaheen brings up the following.
2: There's an AP headline, a story from yesterday, which you all may have seen, which says that the FBI doubts a sonic attack. And I would just read um, briefly briefly. The FBI report, which hasn't been released publicly, is the clearest sign to date of the U.S. ruling out the sonic weapon theory. The report says the FBI tested the hypothesis that air pressure waves via audible sound, infrasound, or ultrasound could be used to clandestinely hurt Americans in Cuba and found no
0: evidence. The senator is saying that the FBI has decided, nope, it is not sound. Meanwhile, the CIA has remained tight-lipped about what they think. Now, I want to be as fair as possible, and I reached out to many of the senators who were a part of this hearing. I'm not going to be one-sided, but as the saying goes, if it's raining outside, I'm not going to come back inside and try to convince you it's not raining. I don't know if that's a saying, but it could be. Now, a little over a month ago, after that congressional hearing, the JAMA publication comes out. JAMA is the journal of the American Medical Association published by the American Medical Association, AMA. It's considered one of the top, if not the top, medical journal in the world. On February 15th, 2018, they publish a paper entitled Neurological Manifestations Among U.S. Government Personnel Reporting Directional, Audible, and Sensory Phenomena in Havana, Cuba. It's a study of 21 of the 24 Americans injured in Cuba— Why not all 24? I don't know, but some have said to me it's likely something as simple or benign as three of the individuals didn't want to be involved in the study. This study is conducted and written by top doctors at the Department of Neurosurgery and Center for Brain Injury and Repair at the University of Pennsylvania. They state near the very beginning of their study that their objective is to described the neurological manifestations that followed exposure to an unknown energy source associated with auditory and sensory phenomena. Many doctors took issue with this approach because it didn't seem objective. I spoke with Dr. Robert Bartholomew, a medical sociologist who is with the Center for Inquiry in Buffalo, New York.
4: All you have to do is read the first few lines of their study and and you'll see all you need to know. They were... Writing at the beginning of their article that the purpose of their study, and I've got it right here, it says to describe the neurological manifestations that followed exposure to an unknown energy source. This shows very clearly that they were biased, assuming that there's an unknown energy source that was involved. Why is JAMA's publication a big deal? When that article came out, the news media picked up on it and were talking about how this, one of the biggest medical journals in the world Mm. um, had this article that was uh, quite pro um, that there was some type of sonic attack happening. When in fact, um, the accompanying commentary and editorial beat the hell out of the article. They Mm. were extremely um, skeptical and critical, much more so than you would see in most articles. So I think what's happened is, I give them credit for publishing it because it's a, it's an important story. It's an important study. But their study was
0: flawed in, in many, many ways. Dr. Bartholomew is referring to a JAMA editorial which was published along with the study. He says while the editorial provided much more context, it wasn't talked about nearly as much. The editorial points out how the doctors had limited information to work off of. The average patient had been evaluated 203 days after first feeling sick, so it's hard to believe that they hadn't been aware of what others were saying. Not only this, but there wasn't information about the patient's health before coming to Cuba. You see the point, there's just a lot of guessing here. Not ideal in medicine or science. I asked Dr. Smith at the University of Pennsylvania to come on the show. He was the one that conducted the study along with his colleagues. He agreed to come on and then ended up canceling on the day of. And after reaching out twice, I haven't heard back. I did try to get his point of view. I was able to speak with the writer of that JAMA editorial, Dr. Christopher Muth. He pointed out that he did believe overall it was fair.
9: I think the editors, you know, in editing the main paper and in working on the editorial, were trying to make sure that they both were balanced and, you know, just presented the data ...as they were, and um, also, you know, highlighted the limitations.
0: He explained why this study was so difficult, reinforcing the limitations.
9: We'd like to have patients take the cognitive tests at baseline, for example, before whatever happened um, to them. And then, then they can repeat the tests later after, the, after they develop these symptoms. And if they showed, you know, objective declines in their scores then that really helps us understand more.
0: Dr. Muth also talks about how, ideally, the investigators would be blinded.
9: Usually we like to have a control group. So you can compare people who are complaining of symptoms. You can, you know, compare their findings to people who don't have any symptoms. And again, um, the this case series didn't have a control group, but that's more difficult. It's more difficult to have a control group just because of the nature of the study.
0: My main takeaway in all of this is that the politics of this situation is muddying the waters. And despite Dr. Muth and the JAMA editorial providing great context, the published medical journal also confused many. Nothing is particularly clear. It's kind of a perfect storm. As you can probably tell, I'm weaving back and forth between what the heck is even causing this sickness, but then also who is causing it. Are we talking about a grocery store in Cuba, or bad drinking water, or a country with bad intentions? Well, one item did come up in my research. I had it circled on a sticky note to the side and just never really got to it. But, and I'm looking at it here, I wrote, In the first few days of December 2016, again, December 2016, Russia and Cuba signed an agreement to respond to modern challenges to ensure total security of Cuba. Russia's Deputy Prime Minister, Dmitry Rogozin, said that Cuba was to be given general guidelines, which would help modernize and refit its equipment. Russia providing equipment to ensure total security of Cuba, and doing so two months after Trump is elected. Maybe I glossed over this because I felt like I could go down a conspiracy theory rabbit hole and end up jumping to all sorts of conclusions. What I have started to do more recently is study Russia's intelligence apparatus. I haven't even looked into how they deal with Cuba. And I've started to wonder if it's not spy versus spy, and if it's not spy versus spy going awry, or if it's not environmental factors, or if we even can cast aside politics... Could it be that Russia is behind all of this? You know, it's tough being super famous. As you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is the leader and executive producer of our podcast. And, you know, he has like 300 million followers. And then if you add in me, it expands exponentially to like 300 million and 100,000 or something. So for megastars like us, we need security. It's just, you know, it's what we sign up for here. But uh, for people who aren't like The Rock and are just looking for the basics... I'd suggest you check out this company Ring. I did, and I think they're simple and effective. They have smart video doorbells and cameras. So whether you're on business or just away from your home for an hour, you're alerted if you have a surprise visitor, whether it's someone that should not be in front of your home or it's just a delivery you've been waiting for, you get an alert, you can see them on HD video on your phone, and there's two-way audio features as a listener, you have a special offer on a Ring Starter Kit available right now. With a video doorbell and motion-activated floodlight cam, the Starter Kit has everything you need to start building a Ring of security around your home. All you have to do is go to ring.com slash wrh. That's ring.com wrh. Now, what would be one organization, country, or person that could really benefit from Cuban and American relations falling apart. For a moment, ask yourself, who's the richest person in the world? A friend recently asked me this question, and I went through the normal people you'd think. Bezos? Gates? No, she said, exasperated by me being an idiot. Putin is. I saw testimony that Bill Browder gave to a Senate committee. Browder was a big-time hedge fund guy that has become an anti-corruption advocate he and many others have reported on a deal that Putin made with his country's richest oligarchs. It essentially gives oligarchs the freedom to do whatever they want, make money however they want, but Putin gets money from them whenever he needs it. Otherwise, they end up in jail or dead. Said Browder, from that moment on, Putin became the biggest oligarch in Russia and the richest man in the world. So, if there is one country... If you could pick one country that would want the U.S. and Cuba to not get along, I would think Russia for a variety of reasons, but wanted to ask around first. This summer, Ben Rhodes, former U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama, had a new book come out, so lucky for me he was out doing press. Whether you're a Republican or Democrat, this book, titled The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House, is an interesting read because... It's about the importance of storytelling in politics, in life. And as it turns out, a theme in this episode, the importance of storytelling. But regardless, I asked Ben, does Russia have any reason to oppose this? And trust me, what he says is what most American policy experts would say. With respect to Cuba, I think they had every reason to
10: uh, oppose the U.S. and Cuba developing better relations, right? Because they've benefited from the conflict between the US and Cuba, because it's given them this entry point 90 miles away from the United States, um, you know, most dramatically in the Cold War, um, uh, you know, to to be in our neighborhood and, and to take advantage of the fact that we had, uh, you know, a conflict in our neighborhood.
0: You may remember when I was saying at the very beginning of this episode that President Obama got that message from the Pope's office. He actually knew it was coming. He knew because the two men leading the secret talks with Cuba were two people he put in charge, Ben Rhodes and Ricardo Zuniga, who I also tried calling, but he didn't call back. They knew that a third party could help comfort both countries in making sure they'd honor their commitments. They'd have an honest broker. And it was during these negotiations that Ben Rhodes realized firsthand that as secretive as these relations were, something was off. The Cubans and Americans were meeting in Canada to talk. Canada because it wouldn't raise red flags. It wouldn't create questions as it would if they were meeting in D.C. or Havana. Ben Rhodes was in an airport hotel in Toronto to meet with the Cubans when this happens. We walk in
10: and people just want to be noticed by us. They're, They're tattooed. They're wearing kind of clothes that you'd wear in like an 80s rock video or something. And... Yeah, it's a couple, and they walk up, they literally walk up from sitting in the hotel bar, walk all the way up to me, standing right in front of the check-in counter, take out an iPhone, hold it about a foot from my face, and take a picture of me, and then walk away. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't subtle, you know.
0: After progress on the deal is being made, Ben goes to Havana. I'm getting this kind of late-night tour of the city, and
10: some people, you know, kind of very conspicuously walk up to us, Uh, as we're at the statue, and they're speaking in English, and they just switch to Russian right when they get next to us. Like, they wanted us to know, you know? Um, Now, they would know... You know, look, you assume in government that that, that any call you make on an unclassified phone could be intercepted by Russia. Uh, So this call that you and I are making could be intercepted by Russia. You make an assumption that any email that you send, and this is long before the 2016 election, uh, on an unclassified email could be intercepted by Russia. So... You know, if I'm making flight reservations to Toronto, you know, I got to assume that the Russians might know that. The Russians also have a heavy spying operation uh, in Cuba. You know, they were an intelligence presence in Cuba that obviously dates back to the Cold War. So it stands to reason that they keep pretty close tabs on what might be going on in Cuba. Um, And I, I think people don't realize the extent to which you just price in as a U.S. government official that Russia could be monitoring you.
0: As American and Cuban relations got better, Russia knew they may be losing a grip on their relationship with Cuba, an ally of theirs that is also in close proximity to the United States. Thus, the motivations are there. And it's important to remember this all started to happen after Donald Trump was elected. And then it kept happening. Did the Russians see an opening? I don't know. But I kept researching. As it turns out, a recent Wired article reported that Russia is part of an increasingly digital intelligence playbook known as active measures, a wide-ranging set of techniques and strategies that Russian military and intelligence services deploy to influence the affairs of nations across the globe. A few months after taking over as Russia's Chief of the General Staff, Valery Gerasimov outlined his vision for a 21st-century style of warfare. It erased the boundaries between peace and war and relied on emerging technologies to provide a level of deniability for the Russian military. And then there's this. According to Business Insider, Russia has forgiven 90% of Cuba's Soviet-era debt, looking to export to the island. In May 2017, if not earlier, Russia state oil company, Rosneft, began sending fuel to Cuba for the first time in this century. Russian exports to Cuba during the first nine months of 2017 were 81% higher than the same period in 2016. That is why at this point in my research, I think Russia is behind this, and that these are not incidents, but attacks of some kind. I think Congress, well, let me be more specific, President Trump, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Democratic Senator Menendez, and Republican Senator Rubio are wrong. The Cuban government doesn't know. Maybe, maybe some small faction, small group of people within Cuba does, but we could be talking about a Russian spy for Cuba. To say the Cuban government categorically knows? I don't think so. And now, which I can't believe I'm saying, and maybe Juliet, our French acoustics expert, is somewhere shaking her head, but maybe this was a sonic attack and could be the first one. In 2000, Alexander Litvinenko, a former officer of the Russian Federal Security Service and KGB, fled from the court prosecution in Russia and received political asylum in the United Kingdom. Six years later, he was killed by polonium-210. Experts believe this would cost tens of millions of dollars, and this would be the first recorded time polonium was used to poison somebody. So clearly... Russia will hurt people by methods never before seen. An August 2017 article, again by Wired Magazine, which doesn't even mention Cuba, talks more about how Russia can pull all of this off. It's the combination of Russia's efforts that make them so effective internationally. And they are self-reinforcing. Because in Russia, the intelligence apparatus, business community, organized crime groups, and media distribution networks blend together. Blurring and erasing the line between public and private sector initiatives, and creating one amorphous, state-controlled enterprise to advance the personal goals of Vladimir Putin and his allies. So why can't whatever is going on now also be Russia? But I have to say, I just don't think it was a sonic attack. I think it was an attack to some extent, and more on that later, but sound just has no history of hurting people in the way we're talking. (laughs) On November 28th, 2017, a few months after Steve broke the news on Cuba, something new popped up.
2: A newly revealed incident is raising suspicions that Russia may have been involved in mysterious attacks targeting U.S. diplomats in Havana, Cuba. The latest incident happened an ocean away in Uzbekistan. It was reported by a U.S. aid officer at the American embassy there. CBS News Radio's Steve Dorsey has more.
1: In September, a USAID officer and his wife reported what may have been an acoustic attack. According to a U.S. source who says the State Department flew them out of Tashkent for evaluation, the source says
0: the two experienced similar effects as victims of the attacks in Havana, Cuba. The U.S. State Department have denied Steve's reporting, and that's important, but Steve sticks by it. And he also said the following on that CBS report. But two U.S. security sources tell CBS News the incident is raising more suspicions.
1: Russia may have been involved in the incident and could have had a hand in the Cuba attacks that began a year ago. Russia has denied any involvement in the attacks in Havana that have caused hearing loss, brain injuries and other health issues. But Russia has worked to strengthen ties with Uzbekistan, a former Soviet republic and Cuba since the end of the Cold War.
0: Whatever happened in Uzbekistan is unclear, and there hasn't been much reporting, if any, on whatever happened there since late 2017. But almost exactly six months later, on May 23rd, 2018, another incident happened, this time in China. An American citizen working at the U.S. consulate in the southern Chinese city of Guangzhou was reported to be suffering from abnormal sounds and pressure, leading to a mild brain injury. And it was time again for what I do think is a meme that everyone has fallen for. A sonic attack. Could it really be another sonic attack? This time here, at a U.S. consulate in southern China? The U.S. sure seems to think so. Medical teams are en route. Now, CNN didn't cover this in the same way as, uh, wait a second. This is CNN Breaking News. Well,
2: the U.S. State Department is now looking into what could be a new sonic attack. That word from a U.S. diplomatic official who says this time it happened in China, but it is similar to what took place in Cuba last year.
0: It just so happened that the new Secretary of State, no longer Rex Tillerson, but instead Mike Pompeo, had, from what I can count, three different speaking engagements that day. One was in front of Congress in which he addressed the issue. The
4: uh, medical indications are very similar and entirely consistent with the medical indications that have taken place to Americans working in Cuba. We are working to figure out what took place both in Havana and in now in China as well.
0: Later that day, and in an almost too hard to believe scenario, Secretary Pompeo met with Visiting State Councilor Wang Yi. As was already planned, they took about two questions. Luckily, Andrea Mitchell was there. We've notified China of what took place as best we know it, and they have uh, responded in a way that is exactly
4: the right response. Uh, They've honored their commitment under the Vienna Convention to take care of the uh, diplomats that are serving in their country, and we truly appreciate that. They've offered to assist us in
0: investigating how this came to be. I asked Steve Dorsey what he made of the response.
3: While the State Department and the U.S. government is calling it, it, this case an attack in Cuba, they're not doing the same thing in China. And they haven't taken any kind of reciprocal action in China, like expelling diplomats or um, ending consular services uh, or uh, or anything uh, of a penalty kind of nature. They've allowed U.S. Uh, employees of the embassy, not only in uh, in Beijing, but also in Guangzhou, which is this, the kind of the epicenter of, of this, mm-hmm. uh, to come back to the United States for medical examinations. But um, it's being treated on a different plane. And I'm not sure yet, and I don't think the U.S. government knows yet how connected they are, if they're connected at all.
0: There are lots of guesses going on about how China changes what happened in Cuba. But they are only that guesses. Does it indicate that China had some presence in Cuba spying on Americans? Does it suggest Russians spying in both China and Cuba on Americans? Or should we dismiss the environmental factors that we thought contributed to Americans getting hurt in Cuba? I've made three conclusions of what to make from this China development. One comes from Ambassador Treto.
6: The interesting thing is no foreign diplomat has complained about this. And then you have now that there was a similar case in China. What is common to these cases? Well, what is common is that they are American and that Americans use high frequency communication equipment. And I don't know if if that might be the cause. Of course, this is an hypothesis. I cannot prove it.
0: Treto points out that ultimately, there is only one similarity between what happened in China and what happened in Cuba. And that is that both involved American diplomats or intelligence officers. And so maybe both were using high-tech equipment that was malfunctioning. I remembered something Fulton Armstrong had brought up to me previously when talking about Cuba. He said that we should be taking a look into the buildings in which embassy officials are spending much of their time. In this part of the interview, Fulton's talking about information that the State Department could release.
8: They could release, for example, facts that we know informally, such as only family members, only officials and family members who work in the Chancery building have been affected or have spent significant hours, even if the so-called attack took place in a hotel or a private home. That sort of information is useful because in these buildings, there are secure rooms, there are secure facilities that are what we call tempested or tempest-proof or tempest-approved, which, um, which keep emanations from coming in, but also keep emanations from getting out. What, are the, what technology is in these rooms? How many hours a day are people spending in these rooms? What, are the, what is the short and long-term effect of these various emanations um, you know, similar not completely dissimilar to the fact that people who live under high tension electric wires, where they've got a hundred meters between them and and the wires can have health implications.
0: Could it be that in both China and Cuba, the area in which Americans work hard had high tech equipment that was malfunctioning? Maybe. I wouldn't take it off the table, but I also know with the information we currently have, you can't prove it. The second conclusion? It has been well-reported and well-known that the State Department is understaffed. Some believe that when an American in China had similar symptoms to what happened in Cuba, the State Department went fishing for something to describe it. Said Fulton Armstrong, speaking about Mike Pompeo and his reaction to the news in China.
8: But to make it sound like it's the same thing was, I thought, unwise of him because this State Department policy seems much more powerfully, to be that China's a real country. And therefore, we don't kick around a real country the way we'll kick around a little island 90 miles to the south of us.
0: I reached out to the State Department to get their point of view, to be fair to the various parties involved here. They said they'd get back to me, and they didn't. I followed up again, but nothing. The third conclusion, as Ambassador Tretto pointed out, the common factor here is Americans getting hurt. That could mean they're using malfunctioning weapons, or it could mean that they're being targeted. And this points me back to Russia. Again, Ben Rhodes.
10: And I I think people don't realize the extent to which you just price in as a U.S. government
0: official that Russia could be monitoring you. Said Chris Donnelly, director of the U.K.-based Institute for Statecraft, Russia is not constrained by a rule of law or a sense of ethics. They're in a constant state of conflict with the capitalist world and what was becoming a capitalist country that russia had previously been able to rely on cuba the only thing that makes it tough to believe it is russia is that well russia doesn't really cover up its tracks they don't care to they're okay with the world knowing they've poisoned people killed people interfered in elections they deny it yes but Nobody who has looked into the matter or have any sort of fundamental understanding of fact believe them. Russia will leave breadcrumbs and evidence, and so, since what happened in Cuba remains a mystery, why would Russia be so careful to not leave breadcrumbs or evidence? Wouldn't we be able to unequivocally say, yes, it's them, by now? Well, I think I'm getting closer, because I'm realizing maybe Russia only targeted or injured one or two people, not all 24 Americans, at least not directly. I needed to talk to some medical experts. On August 14, 2018, news broke again. It was once again from JAMA. It was four letters sent to the publication asking that they look at possibilities of what was going on in Cuba that point to something other than sonic attacks, or at the very least consider implementing other strategies into examining the 24 people who are injured. And the four letters aren't sent by guys like me who call into sports radio shows. They're sent by experts in different fields of medicine and science. Now, we already knew there were issues with the original study. Issues that were presented in the precise editorial written by Dr. Christopher Muth. For instance, the average patient had been evaluated 203 days after first feeling sick So it's hard to believe they hadn't been aware of what others were saying. Or as you may recall, there wasn't information about the patient's health before coming to Cuba. So although you could say you saw brain trauma or white matter changes in the head, this could have happened before they went to Cuba. Of these four new letters published, one letter suggested the original article overlooked the possibility that this was mass hysteria, which has a certain stigma And so I'll use its more official term, MPI, Mass Psychogenic Illness. Think of what we're talking about, a small island in a country known for spy versus spy tactics, a country where there are piercing and strange noises with a group of really smart people, diplomats and intelligence officers. What do you think happens when somebody tells you they're hearing strange noises and it's doing damage? I called Professor Robert Bartholomew, a leading expert in MPI, and one of the four experts who wrote a letter that JAMA published in response to the original JAMA study conducted by the team at UPenn.
4: Mass psychogenic illness, aka mass hysteria, is
0: the rapid spread of illness signs and symptoms for which there's no physical basis for. As Bartholomew was saying this, it kind of occurred to me could one or maybe a few of these individuals have gotten sick from something specific, maybe a Russian device or or something they put in Americans' food? And then after this, more people got sick, but not from Russia, but some sort of MPI? Well, I started by asking. Can it happen if it does, if there is kind of a first person where physically something does happen? So you see... uh something tangibly happens to somebody or physically happens to somebody, then you think it can happen to you and it goes from there. So it did. There was one person that actually had something.
4: That's right. And in the business, we call that the index case. The first person uh, often in, in because schools and factories are where this happens the most, particularly schools, because you have a captive audience and if something happens, you just can't walk out. Uh, there tends to be an ultra-rapid group consensus that um, something is happening and there's some toxic agent in the environment. And that index case is uh, the first person to have this happen to them. Often they're, they're older, they're of higher status, and it, it's common for them to, uh, for example, to have skipped breakfast and maybe have an illness, and nobody knows about that. Then they see that, and it's very dramatic, and it causes a sudden um, increase in stress within the group. There's several cases in the annals of mass psychogenic literature that parallel the audio perceptions and symptoms reported in the Cuban Embassy subjects, like the hum, you know, that mysterious sound heard around the world. Mm. Um, there have been many outbreaks involving mysterious humming noises from Taos, New Mexico, in the early '90s to kokomo indiana and the late 90s and early 2000s i mean very similar phenomena and so i think what we're seeing
0: here it's it's really nothing new in terms of the index case dr bartholomew made it clear he wasn't sure but did point to environmental factors just as others have there's all sorts of stuff out there uh, especially in cuba uh ambiguous background
4: noises, crickets and cicadas are big in Cuba, Um, tinnitus is big in the world anyway, and it's just phenomenal to me that um, somebody could hear a noise within an hour of feeling unwell, And and then that's one of the major reasons why they used to diagnose this as some type of sonic attack. They went for the most
0: exotic hypothesis. Fulton Armstrong has had experience while he's been in other countries with colleagues getting sick.
8: Rumors often trumped um, facts. And when you have particularly a health issue, those rumors move very, very fast because of the element of fear and because of the element of the unknowable. And there there were certain tendencies that if someone got sick and then someone else got sick, that we would think, oh, not we, but collectively, the group would start connecting dots and drawing up conspiracy theories. Another thing that we had constantly, a little mini hysteria, I don't like the word hysteria, but let's say uh, momentum-building concerns and fears was a thing that we called sabor cubalse, which means the taste of cubalse, because the Diplo stores back then were all run by a Cuban corporation called cubalse. And some of our meats would have this smell and this weird smell, but not really a taste. And every stomachache we got, we would blame on co <laughs> uh and, and stuff. Not the, not the half a bottle of seven-year rum that we had with the meal. But we would. And, and so there's a certain tendency in the absence of solid information and reassurance for people to develop theories. In this case, I think that the informal information that some of us have at least half of the cases really were self-identifying symptoms that were had much more obviously other explication explanations a lot of things when ingested can cause problems with the ears and so it's really unclear the cause and effect
0: now I'll be honest at this point I am itching to get to the conclusion of this story or at least give you my take on what happened but I did talk to one more renowned doctor Who and this is important, also had a response to that original JAMA article, and his letter was also published. Meet Dr. John Stone, a leading doctor on functional disorders and professor of neurology at the University of Edinburgh. He has an excellent website, neurosymptoms.org, which has a great deal of information on his field of expertise. Here, he's talking about
11: functional disorders. There is a lot of um, misunderstanding about these conditions. So functional disorders account for actually a very, quite a high proportion of patients seen in both uh, primary care, so by general practitioners, but also in hospitals. They essentially, they they, they describe patients who are presenting with genuinely experienced physical symptoms like um dizziness or tingling or in, a, in my specialty of neurology people get weak legs or tremor or sometimes even blackouts. They've got those symptoms but they're not due to a brain disease so not due to epilepsy, multiple sclerosis even though they look very similar but they are genuine and in the past people may have called them psychosomatic or psychogenic and uh, people might have assumed that those symptoms were psychological in origin and what we've learned in the in the last 10 or 15 years is that um, functional disorders are, are a thing of themselves. So people can have uh, essentially a problem with the software of their brain, the software of the nervous system that gives rise to these symptoms. They don't need to have a psychological problem. They don't need to be anxious or depressed. And these conditions happen to anybody.
0: Without knowing it, you probably know something about functional disorders.
11: When people are thinking about functional disorders, they forget that some very common conditions that they may have heard of, like irritable bowel syndrome and fibromyalgia, are types of functional disorder.
0: And so as it pertains to Cuba, Dr. Stone is very clear. He doesn't know the answer.
11: Well, I would say there isn't enough information about the patients, and particularly how they develop their symptoms to really understand that. And neither am I saying that I know that these patients do have a functional disorder. I'm saying that the, 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 the point we were trying to make is that, that functional disorders are very common. So finding 21 people who have cognitive symptoms, problems, they're feeling a bit unsteady, they're noticing some visual and auditory symptoms, they've got headaches, can't sleep properly, is really not difficult. This is just a normal Monday morning clinic for me.
0: Dr. Stone believes calling it MPI or mass hysteria Is a tricky term to use in this case
11: yeah it certainly it makes for a sexier story doesn't it there there are 24 individuals of which 21 are in the report it may be that uh if they saw a doctor who then suggested to them said well have you been the victim of a sonic attack because i met someone else and we were worried that that was the case that might have made things worse that's not mass hysteria or mass psychogenic illness. That's just the way in which people's beliefs or things that they've been told can shape symptoms or sometimes make them worse.
0: In in one of your lectures, you say something that uh, uh, really caught caught me, um, struck a chord. Uh where, you know, you talk about doctors and all doctors and the importance of words. And at first, maybe to some, it, it seems obvious, but how how you can say a term, like let's say a psychogenic tremor caused by stress. And the patient now thinks he or she is like, that the doctor is suggesting that he or she is making it up. And um, yeah. then you, you say that the doctor can end up in a verbal landmine uh, that blows up in their face. Um, could you explain how, how words and, and how a doctor kind of positions something with patients in the field that we're talking about is, is, is really
11: important? Yeah, well, I think it, that gets to the heart of why we're in this situation, I think, because many doctors, um, in, I, I suspect including the authors of this article, seem to take the view or have been trained in a way that makes them feel that there's only two sorts of illness there's conditions where there is damage and you can see brain damage or disease and then there's just people imagining things or sort of making things up mm. and anything where there isn't damage isn't really doesn't have the same status it's not really a proper illness it may it may not even be a genuine problem it might just be someone imagining or exaggerating and when you've only got those two choices then uh, in your head then it's obviously and you and you meet some people where you have symptoms and you are become persuaded that they're genuine then of course you're going to choose the damage Mm -hmm. version and if we use words like psychogenic we know from studies that patients tend to interpret those words as particularly in relation to physical symptoms as I, you know, imagined or made up. I think we have to use concepts and words that mean what we want them to mean, which is that these are genuine conditions. So that's what I was trying to get across in that, article, in that lecture, I think.
0: The New York Times, and this is in my opinion, has done little original reporting on what happened in Cuba. And it's no fault of their own. They're quite busy with so much else going on in the world. That is not a lot of original reporting until recently. When on what would be considered a big Friday news dump on the Friday before Labor Day weekend, they had a stunning report in which they interviewed the lead doctor at the University of Pennsylvania. It took anyone who has been following this situation in Cuba by surprise, to say the least. The story was quickly picked up by news channels around the world.
2: Speculation at the time was that it was some sort of sonic attack, but now the scientist who led the investigation tells the New York Times the main culprit is likely some kind of microwave weapon.
0: The New York Times report also included an interview by the man who invented microwaves being used as weapons. After doing just a little bit of research, I realized this wasn't the first time CNN reported on microwave attacks. The following is from a 1985 CNN special report.
4: Dr. Bass and others feel the most likely form of Soviet RF weaponry would be high-powered microwaves, similar to a focused ultra intensity radar beam. It would literally cook humans and knock out computers and electronic surveillance and communications gear.
0: Using microwaves as a weapon dates back to the 1970s, when Soviet intelligence beamed microwave signals into the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And this microwave theory was thought of from the very beginning, now nearly two years ago, but dismissed by most. Tim Golden talked about it in his article, saying symptoms of those in Cuba did not, according to Golden sources, closely resemble what happened to those in Moscow. And that is part of why I find this new reporting so strange. And... To be clear, this is really my own opinion, my own questioning. But why at this point in September 2018 are we bringing up microwaves all of a sudden? This was thought of and dismissed already. Well, the thing is, I can't find an answer. The doctor at UPenn, who was interviewed in this New York Times article, says that they decided microwaves could likely be the reasoning for these people being injured. And so the news has just run with it microwaves. This sudden Friday news dump also happened to come only about two weeks after the four articles really criticizing the original JAMA article. But now, if you do a news search, you'll see the microwave theory has been picked up by most major news sources. Has another meme caught on? I interviewed ex-CIA agent Fulton Armstrong months before the New York Times article came out. And it even asked about microwaves.
8: But for microwaves, it, it's an old game, yes, from the Cold War. And there are even retired um, individuals engaged in these sorts of spy versus spy operations or were t- felt that they were targeted who have somewhat credible anecdotes about, about microwave sorts of things. Even a dear, dear friend of mine, but in this case it would be a sound image, and you would do it to activate, to activate a microphone, and all of that. That presupposes a huge amount of operational preparations and a, and a massive amount of resources, because they would have to know exactly what hotel room and what bedroom and what this of a home where you know, the details are, are are huge. And there is no evidence that anybody was ever holding these sorts of classified conversations in their hotel rooms or homes that would be worth that sort of investment on the microwave side. This is pretty sophisticated toys that we're talking about um, in, in this. So this yes, there's precedent for using microwaves, but no one, no one uh, that I've read or that I've talked to, including people who were involved in pretty sensitive stuff in the past, could give me a scenario in which sound would be used.
0: I feel a bit out of turn going against what the University of Pennsylvania doctors are suggesting could be what happened. But remember, in Tim Golden's article, people had discounted microwaves because, one, people were getting too sick, and two, it would be too hard to pull off without anyone noticing. Again, the only thing anyone had ever seen was this one van. In the last few weeks, just as I've been wrapping up my research— NBC News reported that the U.S. government had discovered intercepts suggesting this was, after all, Russia. This, I had already suspected, and hasn't really changed any of my thinking. The only strange component to me is that they keep calling it sonic attacks, when there's no evidence of a sonic attack. Over the last six months, if you asked me at a dinner party, or... I <laughs> I can't remember the last time I went to a dinner party. So I guess if you met up with me on the street or something and asked what happened or what was going on, my answer would have been probably different every time you asked. After I spoke with Ambassador Tretto, I was convinced this was spy versus spy used by Americans that ended up hurting Americans. After speaking with Peter Cornblue, I was convinced this was spy versus spy used by Cubans that ended up hurting Americans. After speaking with acoustics expert Juliet Volkler, I was convinced this had nothing to do with spy vs. spy or acoustic surveillance gone amok. After speaking with ex-CIA analyst Fulton Armstrong, I was convinced it was environmental factors even though Fulton made it perfectly clear there wasn't a straight answer. After speaking with Professor Bartholomew, I was convinced this was mass hysteria. After speaking with Dr. Stone, I was convinced it was a functional disorder. After speaking with Obama's aide, Ben Rhodes, I was convinced it was a Russia rogue intelligence group. After speaking with Tim Golden a second time, I was convinced I had no idea. And after speaking with ex-CIA analyst Fulton Armstrong a second time, I was assured that claiming to know what happened is dishonest. There just aren't enough facts. But I will, at the very least, give you my opinion from where things stand now. I think the fact that this happened after Donald Trump was elected is not a coincidence. Americans were severely hurt. There's no denying that. I also can't imagine how tough it is for some of them because of security reasons and fear of leaking. They are not allowed to talk about what happened, the experience. And that's probably particularly hard with people like me speculating, albeit in good faith, and then other people, I think, recklessly speculating. 24 Americans were hurt. But unlike reports, I think it may have been 1 to 5 Americans who were targeted by Russia, not necessarily 24. Another 10 or so Americans, while also hearing sounds, went to hospitals and discovered they were also hurt. And they were. But I don't believe it was via an attack. I think it is likely they were already injured previously without knowing the extent. Or it could be what Dr. Stone taught me more about, a functional disorder. It could be some form of MPI, what Professor Bartholomew explained. Or, of course, it could be environmental factors. Maybe it has something to do with the wirings of the buildings in which the Americans work. This opinion could be so far off as I haven't heard anyone else say it, but it's what I think. Russia perpetrated and hurt Americans using something. And that number ballooned to 24 once doctors did more thorough examinations of those in Cuba. I think the Trump administration, certain Democrats, and Republican senators used this awful situation and played it to their advantage. They came up with a make-believe term, acoustic weapons, and blamed Cuba. Much of the media, with the exceptions of people from Steve Dorsey to Tim Golden, consumed with so much else going on in the world, were unable to really take a look at this, to spend considerable time on sorting it out. And the term acoustic weapons, made us all, including myself when I started this process, believe that that was what happened, believe that such a thing even exists. So what is the result of all this? First, this is bad for American intelligence. That was explained to me by Peter Kornblu.
7: Cuba is a country that has relations with other parts of the world that the United States doesn't have, and therefore it becomes a fertile ground for gathering information about other countries, particularly North Korea. Um, that the United States could not otherwise get. So this is another world
0: of international relations that few people know very much about. Ambassador Tretto said something similar to what Peter said and also added the following.
6: Cubans don't have an American consulate where to apply for a visa. In this sense, we have gone back to before 1977. 1977, the U.S. opened the intersection Uh, And there was no embassy, but there was a consular section where you could go and apply for a visa.
0: To get to the bottom of this, I think we'll require a combination of patience to not jump to conclusion and also vigilance to not let anyone convince us it's one factor versus another. Not until there is enough evidence and facts. What I've learned more than anything in this process is that while sonic attacks, CIA covert operations and international spies traversing the world is Sexy, it is career diplomats and intelligence officers who were injured that seem to have gotten lost in all of this. These are people who put their life on the line. And when partisan politics from both sides of the aisle and is applied to a situation in which lives are on the line, we do a disservice to those who are serving. We do a disservice to our national security, a disservice to countries we should have a symbiotic relationship with, a disservice to Americans and Cubans alike and we lose sight of being a transparent democracy. I have a feeling this journey may just be getting started, and we are leaving a mountain of investigatory work to journalists and people within the government who are willing to speak out. And that is kind of the good news. There are heroes in all of this. There are people like Tim Golden out there, who, as they have time and time again in their career, remain diligent and determined to get to the bottom of what really happened. Don't forget come in and see the newest Sleep Number 360 smart beds. It's your competitive edge from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 550 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Visit sleepnumber.com/podcast. So reaction episodes are certainly important with this episode. If you want to be a contributor, go to our website, jenkspod.com backslash contributors or leave a message at 413-471-2975. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Andrew Jenks. Special thanks to Dr. Casey LaDuke for providing scientific consultation for this episode. Dr. LaDuke is a former neuropsychology fellow at the University of Virginia Medical Center and is now assistant professor of psychology at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. For more information on Dr. John Stone's work, you can go to two websites, fndhope.org or fndaction.org.uk. Many thanks to all of our incredible guests. Next week on What Really Happened. John Carter, one of history's biggest box office flops, $250 million, gone. But it was directed by a two-time Academy Award winner, Andrew Stanton. It had Disney's backing. It was based on a book that inspired Star Wars and Avatar. This is the anatomy of a box office flop, and a journey I go on to realize in Hollywood, nothing is as it seems. That's next week on What Really Happened.